Climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Welcome to uh, another episode of Cockpit Council. Really excited about this one today. This is our first episode of Cockpit Council where we're live and have uh, you know a great friend, Ari Buchler here, who is, um, uh, who is just an incredible professional, amazing career. And uh, we're gonna talk and try to get some insights about, uh, about Ari's career and, and some advice that he has for, uh, for in-house counsel who are coming up. So um, without any further ado, Ari, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell tell us briefly just a little bit about yourself. You know where you grew up, sure. um, what brought you to Boston, and uh, and what you're doing right now. Great. Um, this is a four hour uh, episode. Uh, that's okay. That's affirmative, sir. Um, so actually, I was born in Boston in Dorchester, uh, and then when I was a young uh, child, moved to Israel with my family. Uh, and was there till 1986, did my military service and came back to the States. My extended family was here in Boston, so Boston was a natural uh, location to come to, uh, but eventually ended up in New York, both for undergrad and for law school. Uh, started out working at Skadden Arps, uh, corporate finance department, which is a great experience, yeah. and eventually moved into uh, GC roles, which became a succession of GC roles. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, Tell me a little bit about that transition from Skadden into your first in-house role and, and what level was your first in-house role? Sure. Uh, so the transition from Skadden, I, you know, I think was uh, easier than in some cases uh, just because of the volume of work that you're exposed to in a large law firm. Uh, it's a mixed blessing, of course, yeah. in terms of the time commitment. But, you know, you work, uh, you're surrounded with some other very talented uh, mentors and leaders. So going into an in-house position, you know, I think I was very well equipped to tackle deals that might be more complex. Uh, my background was in corporate finance and M&A primarily and some corporate work. So the transition to commercial contracts was a little bit of a ramp uh, yeah. to go through. Uh, my first in-house role was at a company uh, called Van Connors Publishing, eventually Read uh, Business Information. Yeah. Uh, B2B publisher and the interesting part of it. So this was mid nineties. It was really a time where businesses were transitioning from old, old sort of their old business model to the internet. This right. was a B2B publisher. And so it was really interesting to be part of a business and really uh, help bring a legal perspective to that transition from printed content and an advertising business. Uh, to an online business. Right. So uh, as far as publishing, were they, uh, was it primarily content creation or was it the actual, like physically, like getting blue lines and like, like producing print production? So this was, uh, the, the, the industry itself was a series of vertical B2B publications. Okay. Uh, the primary source of revenue is of course, advertising revenue. Uh, there's also an associated conference business, and uh, it really was um, you know, a lot of IP work. So getting exposed to 
uh, both content IP and uh, marketing IP and again, trademarks, copyright, which I had not dealt with uh, before, but luckily had some colleagues there who had and helped me kind of get on that ramp. But this is traditional, you know, magazines. Yeah. Uh, my favorite title of all of them will always be Cheese Market News, yeah. which was a, uh, no surprise, a Wisconsin publication. And <laughs> it just sticks in my mind um, as a yeah, very uh, targeted audience. That's why I can't believe we haven't talked about this before. So um, my first exposure to in-house legal work, I was a law clerk. Um, uh, you, do you remember the entertainment coupon books? Which was it? Enter Entertainment, the coupon okay. books. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, I interned in the legal department at that company oh my God, uh, wow. when I was in law school, <laughs> which was pretty wild. And, uh, you know, sh sifting through like merchant agreements is, is basically all advertising. Right. 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 And, um, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. That's uh, that's crazy, though. I didn't I didn't realize you were in publishing. But well, I think one of the interesting things about that time also is people didn't know what to do with the Internet. So I remember yeah. literally drafting a linking agreement. Uh, <laughs> you know, today you just throw a link in somebody's web page and everything says. But yeah. in those days, people thought, oh, we need to have an agreement to allow a link on another page. So right. it really was an interesting time, you know, that that evolution, you know, onto the web, which of course has continued now for the past uh, few decades. Uh, but being part of that transition into business is, is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, how long were you there and, and, and sort of how did you grow with that, with that company and what was your next step? So I was there for about three years. And again, one of the great things about that uh, opportunity is that I got exposed to many areas, uh, not only of law, but also business that I'd never dealt with before. Uh, the exemplar IP, copyright, but then, you know, constructing partnerships, uh, a lot of M&A work. We did yes. a lot of buying and a lot of selling, which I had done, but I'd done it as an outside advisor. Of course, being in-house, it's a very different experience. You're much closer to the business. You have a much better understanding of the business considerations that are relevant, not just kind of the legal points. And so working with a team of, uh, you know, other lawyers and a general counsel um, became exposed to other areas that, um, eventually became relevant, not just for legal work, but other areas of work that I've, I've transitioned into. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what was the next, uh, what was the next step on your journey? So from there, I came into my first executive legal role, which is a small startup. I came in as general counsel, uh, a company had built the first web-based clinical trial system it was a okay. Boston based uh, company. Yeah. If fewer than 90 people had just started, uh, revenue, um, my first management meeting, uh, I found out we had two weeks of cash, which was a great dinner conversation at home <laughs> that night. Today, I think two weeks, plenty of time to yeah. go raise money. Yeah. Um, and there I came in. I think the expectation is, is often the expectation, or I should say used to be the expectation in a lot of companies is we're bringing in a legal or a general counsel to help with contracts yeah. or to cut our legal bills. And I think it, it is a, I think today most companies do not take that view. I think it's a very outdated view, yeah. but we're talking, you know, 20 odd years ago, that was the predominant view of why you bring uh, somebody in house. Right. I think the legal profession, the in-house profession has certainly evolved tremendously, giving general counsels and legal function, you know, the seat at the table on the C-suite, uh, which is very, very different than when it was when I started. Okay. Um, I was fortunate to work both with management team and board members who saw significant value mm -hmm. in having an in-house counsel. So they had no desire 
to just have legal deal with contracts. They had really expectations and a desire to help the company with governance, uh, to really take the company down that roadmap of an eventual IPO. So the company did uh, grow. We did a bunch of financing rounds, but eventually did IPO in the NASDAQ. Yeah. Uh, we did a secondary in the NASDAQ, and then eventually uh, the company was acquired by Oracle in 2010. Yes. Uh, I stayed there longer than I ever thought I would. I was there for 11 years. But uh, again, being in that GC role um, and, and having visibility of kind of the entire trajectory of a company from early stage startup to the public company was really a unique experience. And the GC role really is, I think, one of the few roles in the company, aside maybe from a CFO, that is visibility to all functions in a company right. and works with all functions. And it puts the GC in a unique position to really learn a lot from you know, their executive peers uh, across the, the functional uh, landscape. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So let's talk a little bit about growing your team there. Obviously, it wasn't it wasn't just you there for 11 years no. um, and, and coming in when you're when you're running on fumes from a cash perspective. I'm mm -hmm. sure you were doing the heavy lifting, everything from reviewing NDAs to helping prepare board meetings for at least the first little while on your own. Yeah. Um, you know, what what was your approach at that time, uh, if you were to, you know, put yourself back in that position, what was your approach then? And in terms of how you wanted to build out your team, how you did build out your team mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. if you were doing that again today, yeah, how would you do it a little differently? So um, I had a label printer. It's a nickname, my paralegal. That's yeah. my first <laughs> investment. And then a scanner. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, again, when you come into a company, whether you're the first in-house counsel, which I was, or you're coming into an established role, reaching out, establishing relationships, but also using those conversations to kind of gather information just, you know, on what the company is doing. In my case, maybe it's a little easier at the time because we were just starting out. So, you know, it wasn't hard for me to find out where all the commercial contracts are. They were not all right. in one place. Get a, a handle on that. Um, Trying to establish a system, even though, you know, I was the yeah. system, but that could grow. So not something that um, was useful to me, but would not be useful if somebody else came in. And as far as growing the team, I think, you know, in, a, in an executive role, I think it's very important to keep in mind that kind of duality of the executive role and then the tactical operational support you need to give to other functions. Mm -hmm. And over time, as an executive, I think you need to aspire to create sort of a leadership function and then build out that support function for the for, for the other uh, parts of the company because ultimately you are building a service business within a company. That's right. You have your own client base. You have your own responsibility really to educate people in the company on your services. So I consider that sort of internal marketing, sure. you know, getting involved in other functions. And so I think as you as the company grows, you really need to look at where the strongest needs are. Now, in most cases, I think in a a B2B SaaS company, the immediate needs are going to emerge in the commercial side. Yep. So really building out a team that can support the uh, sales team and partner with the sales team. So that, of course, where that is where the first investment was. Um, but then from a team growth perspective, giving opportunities for those commercial lawyers to then grow into other areas and help them develop expertise in, again, uh, IP, marketing, trademark, M&A, in addition to sort of the primary responsibility of making sure that we're closing deals and, and supporting the business. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's one thing that uh, 
I didn't do early on was make sure that every attorney I hired spent time in the contracts. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, just being a little bit self-reflective on it, I probably did a couple of those folks a little bit of a disservice as mm -hmm. far as uh, professional development. I think if you're going to operate in-house and you're going to operate in-house at the highest levels, then you need to be able to understand, understand that aspect of the business, mm -hmm. whether it's B2C or whether it's B2B. Right. Um, you know, your, your contracts are a massive source of, mm -hmm. of, of what your responsibility is. You know, I tell people all the time when I think about the legal function, um, and, and think about why, you know, why contracts is so important, mm -hmm. even though like, even now today, like the number of contracts that I review on a, on a monthly or a quarterly basis is very, very, very small, mm -hmm. right? Like right. maybe two, right? right? That sort of thing. Uh, thankfully, cause I have a great team that's, that's able to do that. But why do I still think that that's most important, even though at the highest level, that's not what's consuming my time every day is because if you don't have an understanding of that, you just can't possibly understand the way that uh, the way that the business either spends its money right. or receives its money. And right. if you can't do that and you're an attorney for the company, you're not going to be very effective, I think. No, I think I think that's right. I think, um, you know, no doubt that was a transition as well, even going from uh, read business information into my executive role at, at, at phase forward, you know, the first day I marked up, I probably aged uh, the sales uh, VP by about five years. Uh, <laughs> luckily, you know, we built a relationship and I managed to kind of tone it down really to where it needed to be for a commercial contract versus right. an M&A deal. Mm -hmm. um, but I also the opportunity to learn a lot from that sales exec and other sales execs along the way, uh, where eventually I actually ran a sales team for a $20 million business in software and in cybersecurity in a different company later. Yeah. Uh, and the thought that somebody from a legal background would actually run a sales team, you know, does yeah. it, not, not the first uh, thing that jumps to mind, um, but yeah. it really, and I think this goes back to the opportunities that GCs have to really learn from peers and create sort of a, a value add mentality that goes beyond being a, a legal provider. Uh, so one of the goals I had always set to myself, uh, set for myself and my team is that to become go-to people. Yeah. Even if we don't have the answer, uh, we can help try and get to the answer. We will be creative. We will, you know, if we can't give the answer that somebody wants, they can walk away knowing, okay, we really have, we made a good faith effort. We've exhausted the options more often than not, we can get to the answer, right? right? And it's a matter of, again, understanding what's unique about that business, getting comfortable with, with some risk taking. As far as that understanding the role of, of a GC as a mentor, that takes time. Because yeah. I think when, at least for me, you know, when you start out as an executive role, you're drinking from a fire hose. Right. And as time goes on, you start to benefit from the, um, you start to realize the benefits of prior mentorship and also learning from your peers in different functional areas, and then you realize, okay, I have responsibility to do the same for my team, but it's not an overnight thing. And then yeah. you get to the point where somebody runs into your office, when somebody in your department runs into your office with their hair on fire panicking, yeah. and you get to be the one to say, ah, don't worry about it, it's right. fine. Whereas <laughs> 10, 15 years before, you'd be the one running in with your hair on fire. Yeah. And that is, again, that perspective that you gain over time is being a GC, building out a team, and getting, you know, getting to see the relative 
risks and, and benefits of taking certain positions in negotiations with customers yeah. or, or vendors for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely there's definitely an aspect of the uh, not only the years of experience, but the experience and the years to bring mm -hmm. that to bring that perspective and and understand, you know, understand when it's time to to panic internally while remaining right. calm externally. Right. Um, and and when to when to just say, OK, I, I, I know I know this isn't going to be a big deal, even mm -hmm. though it may seem like it. Um, so very interested in understanding um, the path that that took you from being GC then into running the sales team and starting to branch out and mm -hmm. and overseeing uh, a bit more on the business yeah. side. So um, after phase forward, I took some time. I thought, gee, the startup thing is really easy. So I actually worked in a startup <laughs> with a technical co-founder. And after about nine months of really having fun building a prototype, um, he remembered his son's in college. I realized my daughter's about to go to college. We said, yeah, this startup thing's not for us. We, right. we have tuition to pay. Um, so I did go back uh, into the workforce in, in, a, uh, in a normally employed fashion. I have done a number, from then on, done a number of private equity-backed uh, companies, mostly turnarounds. Mm -hmm. uh, and in one of the companies, Sophos, which is a cybersecurity company headquartered out of the UK, uh, although they were searching for a GC, uh, once I met with the CEO who had been brought in to really turn the company around, um, you know, he identified other roles where I could support uh, support the company, and those yeah. were head of corp dev and M&A and running an OEM licensing business, which is okay. more strategic licensing. So your technologies mm -hmm. are getting embedded in other parties' technologies. Yep. So it's different from sort of your direct-to-customer or your sales strategy, mm -hmm. but you know, it's still uh, having a P&L actually is not something that lawyers normally have in a That's company. Right. Uh, right. And again, it just brings a whole new perspective. I think coming with a philosophy that your legal team is a service organization and having, you know, thinking about it as if it were P&L, right, with, you know, where do you spend your capital and, and so on, uh, certainly helped take on a business role where it wasn't much of a change of orientation, still very customer oriented, working with the sales team, working with a product management team uh, to position your offerings for, for customers. And of course, negotiating those deals, um, you know, with, with the strategic objectives in mind, uh, but if, at the same time, having to try and do some of the legal, uh, you know, legal points as well. I did normally try to separate. So if I was functioning as, as head of that unit, uh, I would tend to try and have somebody in my team do the contract just so I'm not, you know, doing both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It helps you to kind of keep, keep your, keep your perspective where it needs yes. to be and let and especially with a lot of the legal work like if you've got good people on your team you can trust them to to worry about the legal stuff yeah. for you um and and chase that down that's that's excellent yeah i have to say on the people side i've just been fortunate both in terms of people that i've worked with an executive or uh worked for as ceo and also people i've recruited i've been Pretty fortunate. Uh, in most cases, people I've worked with even 20 years ago are still among uh, my close friends, yeah. and I've also been given the opportunity by them to help uh, continue to participate in their careers, whether it's just by career advice or intru introducing them to new roles. Uh, and that's not something I think you think about in your day-to-day -day job as a GC. 
but it's it's a takeaway you get to have and it has selfishly is a lot of uh you know satisfaction in, in doing that yeah absolutely and and so with the career development i'm sure you i'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times is you you you're now completely out of operating as a as a legal executive mm -hmm. and and you're exclusively on the business side and would love for you to talk a little bit about sure. about specifically what you're doing now but um you know for attorneys who are in maybe the the middle to the middle of their in-house career mm -hmm. and thinking like what's next for me i'm really embracing the business side but i still have this lawyer thing that yeah. that i have to you know in some ways overcome uh in order to be really viewed as a true business partner as a as, yeah. a, as a business professional as my core competency mm -hmm. uh, how do you how do you start walking down that path and what advice do you give to people who are interested in, in moving that direction um well i think it's a great question and a question again i i also get quite a bit um I think that when you, if you aspire to be in an executive role as a uh, legal professional who's not yet in the executive role, I think you, you have to take a very broad view of your role. Your role continues to be, of course, to help manage a company's risk. But, you know, we're living in a world where it's not about risk elimination, it's about risk management and risk mitigation and weighing that risk against the benefits of the company. So there are concessions you'll make for a seven figure deal that you're not going to make for a, uh, you know, a five figure deal. And I think that's where you really need to think and not treat every deal the same way and, and take a more of a business oriented view. You know, we're all again trying to close business. Mm -hmm. And then I think with that is is also that appreciation for growing your, in your role uh, also as an educator, whether it's for people in the legal function or people outside the legal function. I think there, the more people understand, and I've had this feedback from salespeople, marketing people, just understanding why we take certain positions yeah. just makes it a lot easier. It also makes it a lot easier for them to help support you know, legal. Instead of saying, well, legal doesn't let me, they can say, well, we don't do that. You know, We don't right. accept unlimited liability. Or, and yeah. I think it's a very, it's a, I think it has a huge impact even in interacting with customers. And then as you allow yourself to um, really take in more knowledge information from other functions to see how it all relates to yours, it also allows you them to contribute further. And once you enter into that executive role, I've tended to see that as a pretty big flip where at that point you are first and foremost an executive, just like any other function and you are responsible for a particular function. And tomorrow, you might have another function brought under you that you don't even have experience in, and, and have had that happen. But because of your leadership skills, because, you're, because of your knowledge of the business, um, you might be given another function to manage. And that's really an opportunity, again, to um, divorce your, or at least apply your management and leadership skills outside of an area of your expertise. And I think that's one of the greatest transitions you can do as, as a, a GC or a lawyer. And I think it's one that if you really want to grow as an executive, you should be actively seeking out uh, as opposed to, as I did at times, trying to shy away from right. uh, thinking, you know, I, I don't want another function, but then once you have it, it's, it's really um, a great opportunity to then you know, flex those other non-legal muscles in a, in a business and, and leadership setting. 
one of the things that that I found is I, I oversee the IT function, the people function and operations here, as well as the legal function. And one of the things that um, that I found that's extremely refreshing is that I'm absolutely not a subject matter expert in the people function or the IT or the operations side. And so I've had to hire people who and, and then just just trust, yes. right? Hire and trust. And I found that it's actually, uh, you know, despite knowing that that my legal function leadership is mm -hmm. extremely strong and extremely capable, I have more trouble letting go of that one okay. than than just being able to say, OK, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Ask, you know, ask the questions that you need to ask right. so it makes sense and try to get everything put in the broader perspective, the mm -hmm. perspective of the business. But then just saying, OK, like you can go and execute. Let me let me know what I can do to help you. Right. Right. That's really hard for me to do in the legal function. Okay. But um, but it's been refreshingly easy to do on the uh, yeah. on the others. Wondering if you kind of felt the same way or if it was maybe a little bit different for you. It's, it's, it's really a good question. Um, I guess I, I don't know that I had a hard time letting go because, again, generally when I was maybe lucky uh, with hiring or I brought in people that I felt um, were eager to grow, were eager to learn more, were eager to take on more. And I got to a point where more tactically than strategically not letting go, where somebody bring an issue and I'd start saying, oh, well, you could say this or you could write that. And then I eventually learned to catch myself and say, I, I, I don't like it when people tell me what to write in an email. And, yeah. and that's what I'm doing. I'm telling somebody else how to respond. And like, no, we, to your point, take this position and let them run with it. You know, yeah. and, and I'll catch myself and say, why am I telling you what to write? You're going to write an email that's at least as good, if not better than what I would write. Right. Once you've decided on the issue, run with it. You know, and, and right. that's, I think, an empowering thing for uh, for people. Not and, and, and to your point, not everybody, I think, can let go. I, and yeah. I think um, it's it's really it, it's incumbent on the GC to not only be successful, but to make their team successful, to be able to let go. And it may be a risk for the GC, right? Because sure. if something blows up, it will come back to you. Yeah. But that can't be what drives you to always be involved. You know, part right. of your success is measured by how the people you hire or you manage handle things. And yeah. if they handle it well, that's a good reflection of you. If they don't, then, you know, you, you do have some responsibility for that. And I think it's, uh, unfortunately, lawyers can be risk averse, as, as yeah. we all know. And I think that's sometimes where it's hard to let go. But I think once you do, you'd be surprised just how the world doesn't come to an end, actually. Yeah, one of, one of the things that really helped me, uh, you know, over, you know, and, and, Jonathan, our, our VP of legal, just joined back in October. Um, and so one of the things that really helped me was I one day I just came to this realization. You know, I was kind of joking with with uh, my wife about it. I was like, I don't know why he's not doing things exactly the same way that I do them in my head, but I haven't told him anything that's going on in my head. yet. Mm -hmm. And um, and we both just kind of laughed about it. And I was like, OK, there's more than one way to be successful. And there's Absolutely. more than one way to go about this. And like, Jonathan is extremely capable um, and has proven himself to be uh, to be just an outstanding yeah. leader and an outstanding partner to the to the team here. And, um, you know, while some of the things may not be uh, may not be exactly the way that I would do them, mm -hmm. per se, um, some of them are better than the way that, I, that I've done them historically. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, and, and ultimately is getting an outstanding result. And so yeah. that that's been something that's really helped helped me sort of feel very comfortable with, uh, you know, with, with understanding that I can't spend 45 percent of my time in the legal function any longer, you know. And, and I think to an earlier point you made about trust and other function is you basically come to trust people's judgment. And that's right. And, and again, in a in an area where it can be hard to resist temptation, I've seen there have been cases where I have seen somebody or somebody run something by me a way they want to do it. And the one thing you don't want to do is have them if, if you're always changing it, then they end up feeling they have to run everything by you. So even if I might do it differently, especially, of course, if it's not a big issue, I might let them kind of run with it. And after they're done, we might have a conversation about, you know, other other way, you know, and, and it's clear to them that it's not a criticism of the decision. It's it's an opportunity to, you know, for us both to analyze, but also to let them know that I trust your judgment, you yeah. know, that, you know, I'm intentionally not telling you. Um, and I, I had a, a lawyer work with me in a, in a few companies ago who would bring everything to me. Right. And <laughs> at some point I said, you know, that's just not going to work, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I said, you know, you hit the steel door and you can't figure out an issue, then come to me. But if you're, you know, just trying to get through issues and, and just usually it's just a matter of like kicking down the door and kind of getting further down the hall, because it's not a perfect right. uh, analogy or metaphor, but, um, uh, and eventually she, she realized she, she can't, she could not make those decisions. And she realized it uh, just wasn't a role for her because right. she preferred and she had come from a background where she uh, did work while called a little more prescribed, like they had okay. very strict kind of uh, rules and what they did. And so when it came to encouraging her to make decisions, take risks, she realized herself that she wasn't comfortable with it. And she came at some point and said, yeah, I'm, I'm not for me. And that's yeah. that's incredible to have that level of self-awareness mm -hmm. to actually say like, okay, this is, because a lot of people will shut down and be like, oh, so like my my boss is doing this wrong, yeah. like pointing pointing the finger elsewhere and yeah. instead of taking, you know, taking that that a time of reflection to say mm -hmm. like, okay, is this really the right role? Is this really where I'm, where I'm gonna be most successful right. from a career standpoint? Um, so I, I know we've been going back and forth, but we, uh, I think we may have some questions from the audience here. Alyssa, is there, uh, did we get any, uh, any questions yeah. during the time? So we have a question about link squares, the how, when, why that you got involved. Okay. So the question was, uh, Ari being a, in a very, very early investor in link squares, mm -hmm. tell us the story. How, when, why did you oh, get sure. involved? Um, so I, uh, one of the things I've done in between companies is a little investing, looking at different companies. Uh, and I generally gravitated towards companies that had they existed 10, 15, 20 years ago, my life would have been a lot more relaxed. <laughs> I would have more hair and it would be darker. Uh, and Link Squares fit squarely into that category. So I met uh, Vishal and Chris in, I think it was uh, late or mid to late 2016. And they told me what you know they wanted to build, and like, how come you know this hasn't <laughs> existed all this time? But I think the the there are a few things that I think made them stood out or made made them stand out compared to other companies that I've seen. Uh, one is the fact that they had really thought through the issue, 
and they had talked to a lot of people. And I think one of the biggest challenges is when people sometimes try and build a solution for somebody else's industry. Yeah. And, you know, I learned from uh, phase four, the company that built the clinical trial system, the person that started the company uh, was in the clinical research space and his co-founder was in the computing space. So they knew the industry and they understood the problems. I think that, that Christy and Michelle did a great job understanding really, you know, the proverbial pain points or really understanding what they were, but took it beyond that, right? Where it's not just a point solution that's going to solve an immediate issue. It's something that, you know, you, you can grow with the product. As the product functionality grows, you'll be able to grow with the product. Um, a lot of people like to bet on uh, serial entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. That, for me, wasn't really an issue. I, I just thought they had the right uh, DNA, the right chemistry, the right approach, and um, really uh, persuaded me that they understood the issue and that they were going to tackle it in earnest. And that in, in the car, you know, it wasn't one meeting. I spoke to them for a while. And just every meeting showed how much more they were diving into the issues and understanding what the problems were that they were going to solve. Uh, and they've demonstrated that, demonstrated that throughout the product roadmap development. There are, yeah. there are products and features in the product today that were not in the original roadmap because right. customers said, hey, you know, we need this or, you know, I, I don't have a solution for that. And that ability to listen to customers and, and to say, yeah, I meant to do just this, but my customers say we need that. Well, let's make those adjustments. Again, that's um, that's that's not as common as I think you'd like it to be when you're buying software. And I think that's another that's right. area where they certainly have excelled. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just meet people and you think, I want to I want to somehow be involved with what they're doing. Uh, and, and I think for both of them, that was kind of the case with me. I just thought, you know, they're going to be doing something exciting now, granted. I've had the same experience with other companies that um, are not doing nearly as well. Yeah. Um, but I just felt this is a, a really good connection. And I've had the good fortune of also along the way being able to act as an advisor, yeah. uh, whether it's occasionally a product, uh, whether it's occasionally on uh, helping introduction to potential customers, and whether it's occasionally just a call you know, from Michelle about fundraising or something like that. And yeah. again, that just... Um, it's just a, a fun part of being, uh, you know, involved in a company like this. Yeah. So you touched on it. You're in the investment space now. Mm -hmm. um, what What are you doing? What do you love about it? And how has your legal career helped you in your day in and day out now, if sure. at all? So I, I think the legal career absolutely helps because, you know, through my legal career is where I really uh, got involved and started out with really corporate finance and M&A. Uh, I tend to like that kind of work. Um, I, you know, uh, some might say I have an atten a short attention span and deals lend themselves <laughs> to violent execution. And sure. I think violent execution can outweigh, you know, careful planning yeah. many times. Oh, yeah. Um, so I gravitated towards liking deal work. I think it also works well when you're doing commercial deals where you can move yeah. them quickly. And so through my various GC roles, I've always had additional roles. I run HR functions, alliance functions, uh, as I managed a sales team, I mentioned a sales team. And but M&A and Corp uh, Dev have also been a natural kind of fit. Yeah. So through that, I've done, you know, I've probably, well, I've done probably uh, about 50 deals 
uh, and then been involved in probably a few hundred evaluations and targeted evals. And so over time, doing more and more of that, especially uh, in the cybersecurity industry, where I spent a number of years at, at Sophos, um, I just really became part of an ecosystem of bankers and investors. Uh, and I just love looking at companies. I'm, yeah. I'm always thrilled to talk to entrepreneurs, um, you know, hear what they're doing. And through some interactions, was introduced to a private equity firm who had come from a media communications background uh, with some, and, and tech enabled and managed services uh, background. And they were interested in porting that experience, their investment experience into the data security space. We got introduced through a mutual uh, acquaintance and investment banker we knew and just started brainstorming uh, around some ideas. They had uh, already started working in a thesis. And so again, not like a grand plan, but I just started working with them. And now it's uh, a little over three years later where I've evaluated hundreds of companies with them. Uh, I'm on the board of one of the companies in cybersecurity that we've uh, we've made an investment in. And I also work with other portfolio companies outside of cybersecurity. Um, when it comes to getting deals done, looking at term sheets, certainly my deal and legal background come into play. I don't, and I'm not negotiating them. They have outside lawyers, right. but I may have terms that I've seen in prior deals that I've done that you know may make sense to introduce or even help kind of think about how we respond to certain uh, you know at a certain point from the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I see Alyssa again. I think she, I think we've got more questions coming in. We have one more. All right. It's, um, what is the best career advice you ever got? Ooh, that's a, that's always a tough one. Um, so I'm going to say one of the most uh, one of the best career uh, pieces of career advice I got was actually not advice at all. It was a question I was asked, and I'll never th know the answer because I was. Uh, I was, I think I just um, I finished college or law school. And again, I started school when I was older. I worked full time during college. And I met somebody on Fifth Avenue walking outside um, uh, near Central Park. And this gentleman in a suit stopped and asked for directions. We started chatting. And at the end of the conversation, he said, Are you maybe looking for a job? Would you like to come work with me? <laughs> and I said, I, you know, I just got a job. So, no, thank you. Yeah. And today, you know, I still sit here, this is 30 something years later, thinking I'll never know the answer. I'll never know what it was. Right. So I think, you know, the career advice is, you know, just always be curious. Yeah. And you don't want to be, you don't want to live a life of constantly looking for a job. Right. But if you're constantly looking for ways to really grow yourself, the interesting jobs will come your way. Right. And so where I am today is not part of a grand plan. I love doing GC work. I also love doing deal work. Um, and I, I love the people I'm working with right now. And so, but it wasn't part of a grand plan. It was part of kind of the story that I've told through this conversation about uh, having the opportunity to work with some really smart and, and people who are generous with their time to help me grow. Uh, and likewise, being given the opportunity to help other people grow, um, you actually learn a lot about yourself mentoring other people. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, that conversation, my kids have heard that story too many times. I'm sure at this point they're like, okay, dad, shut it off. Um, but it's just, you know, it, it's a reminder to just be curious. Um, even yeah. if it's not your core function, I think you're experiencing this, sure. get the right people and continue to learn and continue to develop. 
All right, so uh, theme of the show is cockpit council. As we've talked about, I'm a pilot. Yes. I love to fly. Um, I have I have pre-flight rituals for when I'm flying versus when you know JetBlue or somebody else right. is flying. Very very different pre-flight rituals. But uh, do you have any pre-flight ritual for when I fly? Or yeah. For, yeah. Or, oh, uh, um, you know. Um, Beginning, I'm about to go to the RSA conference, the cybersecurity conference out in San Francisco next week. And it's the first live one since February, uh, or yeah, February 2020. Yep. Uh, and I was the crazy guy flying back from San Francisco, wiping down my yeah. uh, table <laughs> and wearing a mask. Yeah. So uh, that was my pre-flight uh, flight ritual, kind of remains right. it today. Um, I actually love, I, I really enjoy flying. So yeah. my pre Light ritual is, you know, when I'm getting, make sure my book and I still read a book and I read heavy books, yeah. um, you know, have my book ready, have my headphones ready. Uh, and, you know, once I settle in, I can kind of get into a zone in a plane, you know, enjoy it, uh, get a lot of reading done and uh, yeah, some music and noise canceling headphones. So it's, it's, uh, it's just making sure I have those tools right. ready for me uh, for takeoff. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I mean, for me, for me, if I'm if I'm the one flying, I look at it and say, "All right, it's got wings, and it looks like the engine seems okay. <laughs> Make sure there's some gas and and electricity, and you're good." Uh, just kidding. There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, I'm sure. But I'm sure. Um, and then uh, you know, usually uh, my mine is mine is if I get to the airport early enough, I love to grab a grab a drink and then okay. get my uh, my music playlist set up on on my phone first so that as soon as I get in and sit down, I can pop in the earbuds and um, it won't have to be sitting there pecking at my phone trying to shuffle or yeah. even worse, if you don't have Wi-Fi and make sure everything's downloaded. Yes, right? <laughs> I, um, so. I I make people who well, I, I, just, I stress out people who travel with me a little bit because I don't feel they need to get to the airport really early. Yeah. So to a lot of people, it feels like it's really cutting it. Yeah. Uh, and in however many decades of traveling, once uh, my name was being called to come to the gate, <laughs> but I think that's a pretty good average. Uh, so um, yeah, that's another ritual, just yeah. kind of trying to time everything perfectly. Pre-check is a game changer. Yeah. Absolute game changer. I'm, I'm the same way. If I have to sit, uh, if I have to sit, any longer than 15, 20 minutes before boarding, I'm disappointed with myself, so. But, all right, thanks so much. This has been absolutely awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time to, Thanks uh, for having to me. sit down. So. Really enjoyed it. Thanks.